Hello, this is your co-host, Meryl, and welcome to the Root of Why podcast. And this is your co-host, Kathleen. On today's episode, we're excited to be talking with Shin Yangha, an English language educator and YouTube influencer based in South Korea. His students of nearly 1 million subscribers tune in to learn useful and practical lessons, which he teaches on his YouTube channel, Live Academy. Born in South Korea, Yongha moved with his family as a child to the United States, and eight years later, relocated back to his home country. After graduating from university, he began teaching English to make ends meet, and from there, began to carve his own path. Listening to his journey from becoming a course developer, academic supervisor, to educator, and YouTube creator. We hope that this episode will inspire you to create and help others along the way. Tell us about your experience when you moved from South Korea to the United States. Well, of course, I was only five years old at the time when our whole family decided to uh, move there. Uh, We moved to uh, California. And I think we moved between a couple cities there, but uh, we were mainly in Glendale, California. Um, and we were there for, uh, I think around seven, six or seven years, uh, maybe eight, depending on where we were at uh, different times. But uh, yeah, so I was there for um, elementary school and I graduated elementary school there. And I, Honestly, don't have a whole lot of memory from uh, from from that time, but what I one thing I do remember probably if you ask what my earliest memory was as a child was crying in school. I cried a whole lot in school because uh, back then I, I'm sure there are a lot of you know Asian kids uh, in 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 schools in in America now, but back then I, and I was in a pretty big public school. And uh, there were a very few Asians. It was, uh, as far as I can remember, it was just me and one other kid from North Korea, I think. I don't, I, don't, I mean, that didn't seem weird to me at the time, but uh, now that I think of it, that's kind of weird. But anyway, so there was like only, there were only like two Asian kids in the whole school. Um, and that was, uh, that itself was quite scary. And even the school back then, they didn't really have a lot of experience with foreign, foreign students. Well, well, Asian students who did not speak English um, at all. And that was kind of pre- pretty much the case for me. I had, n- I had, you know, I couldn't even read or write English properly when I was uh, in school. So that was really difficult um, at the time. Uh, communicating, uh, I remember this one, one day we were all lined up uh, at the in front of the water fountain to get a drink, and um, and I remember the water fountain looked so dirty, and I wasn't sure if we were actually allowed to drink it or supposed to drink it, and I was trying to ask the teacher whether we were just you know wetting our lips or 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 actually you know we we could actually drink the water, and I couldn't communicate that, and I you know I just ended up crying and. Um, that went on for a while. Yeah. So, and yeah, it took a couple of years, I think, for me to actually 
started uh, to start feeling comfortable there. So, you know, moving from moving to a completely different city, new language, you don't know, new culture. Mm -hmm. How did yeah. you manage to navigate this change and eventually adapt to this environment? Um, I guess survival instincts kicked in. Um, you know, when you're, especially when you're that young, um, I, you know, there, I'm sure there, everybody goes through a difficult time uh, for a certain amount of time. But when you're young, it's, it's a lot easier because uh, it's, you know, there's a lot less mind games <laughs> between people, I guess, uh, compared to when you're, uh, when you're grown up. So, you know, you just, uh, you're out in the playground, you're playing with kids and, you know, you spend time together. Eventually you gradually catch on, I guess. So uh, I don't exactly remember what I, it, it, it probably wasn't something that I did actively. It's just, you know, being in a certain environment for a certain amount of time, you know, uh, sometimes it just takes time. So that was a really profound story, Dan, with, you know, you crying and not being able to drink the water. So it, <laughs> did that actually, did that inspire you at all to kind of do what you're doing now? Because, you know, for our listeners and, and just for people, uh -huh. The act of drinking water from a water fountain, A, obviously it was dirty, and B, you didn't know that you didn't you didn't know how to say that you didn't want to drink it from that dirty fountain. Well, um, I, right, right. Mm -hmm. So did that inspire you to do what you're doing now? Because you can kind of see how language and being able to communicate, you know, your fears, your feelings, or or anything really is so important. So tell us a little bit more about that. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that a certain experience or um, there was a like a specific motivation for me to become an educator or to become a better educator, but it did uh, what I what I think that I that it did do for me um, is that it's it's equipped me with the right mindset um, and to actually to to be, uh, to be better at putting myself in the learner's shoes to kind of understand their struggles and, 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 the, and the difficulties that uh, people go through when they're trying to learn a language and not only learn the language and understand it, but be in an environment where the language is expected to be used and to survive through that environment. I think it's yeah, it's um, helped me understand it. And I think that makes a lot of difference um, because when you're, I, yeah, it's different when you're simply trying to help someone learn some grammar or learn a couple of words or expressions, um, that and having an understanding of uh, what a learner might go through in a specific situation. I think it's, it's it, it, it ha like I said before, it's equipped me with, um, the right tools, and uh, it's giving me a broader uh, perspective, uh, so to speak, of what I need to do to help people learn a language, to uh, view um, teaching um, at a more fundamental level. So when you moved back to South Korea, did you mm -hmm. have any knowledge of the Korean language? How was that process? Again, adapting to this environment? Did you know the culture? Did it feel natural for you to 
be in this environment? Um, it was actually quite a shock to me when uh, my parents told me that we were leaving uh, where we were in California to come back to Korea because um, before I came back to Korea, I had no memory of Korea because I left when I was like four or five. And, you know, I, I had done no schooling in Korea before I left. So, uh, you know, there was very little, uh, I had very little uh, memory of it. And my, I remember my dad giving me a piece of paper one day. It had the Korean, uh, the Korean alphabet, the Korean, uh, it had the Korean alphabet on it. And I said, what's this? And he said, well, that's the Korean alphabet. And you got to learn this now. And that was a month before we actually came. That was a month before our flight. And so you can imagine, and, and I was what? I, was, uh, I, was, I, I, actually, I had actually graduated elementary school in the States uh, when that happened. And when I came to Korea, uh, other kids my age were getting ready to start their second semester in the sixth grade. And I had just started learning the Korean alphabet. And so, yeah, that was, that was um, quite a transition. It, um, it was like, it was like um, I had to go through the whole thing again, basically. Um, not only the language, but the culture, people, everything. I had to adapt to a whole new world, basically. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't cry <laughs> when I came back. Um, yeah, I was much older to do that. But yeah, it was, um, it was just as hard, if not harder, because, um, you know, uh, the, the expectations that um, students have, especially in school, because, you know, it's such an academic, education-driven society, uh, you're, you're expected to, do, uh, to perform a certain, at a certain level uh, academically. And so you're always taking tests. And when you're not, when you, when you fail on a test, well, not fail, but uh, when you do poorly on a test, you're given certain punishments. I don't know if that's the way it is now, but, um, and yeah, and to go through that was, was quite an experience. So obviously another change, did your parents have a, you know, a strong enough reason as to why you were moving back? I mean, I think making the shift from going to California and then back is, is quite a big move for anyone, um, especially with a young and growing family. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? And, and as well, you know, obviously in your initial stages of um, entering school and the cultural differences, the educational differences, at, one, at any point, did you use the fact that you could speak English or was fluent in that as an advantage? Or was it always seen as that, you know, you were still always trying to catch up in that environment? Uh, I think, well, I had the conversation later on with my parents because for a while after I came back, I was quite, uh, I was a very frustrated little child. Um, uh, even after we came back, especially after we came back because I was having such a hard time in school and, and, uh, and making friends. And so my parents, they, uh, it, I mean, it, I guess it depends on how you look at it. It could be a good reason, it might not. Uh, they were basically homesick. Um, and I guess another side of that is, you know, things didn't exactly go the way they expected in the States, in the US. 
And so I think that, you know, that may have been, uh, you know, but now I can understand them. It's, it's not, I mean, they're not, I, I don't, I don't consider them as bad parents for doing that. I, I mean, I wish it, things could have been different, but you know, it's, you know, it's, it's what it is. So uh, we came back and um, just like I was a very unique case uh, when I was in the, when I was in the States, I was uh, one of very few Asian students in the school. And that was pretty much the case when I came back as well. I'm, I'm sure now there are a lot of, you know, a lot of people, you know, they spend a couple of years in, uh, in, in foreign countries and come back and uh, finish uh, their schooling here. But back when I was, and, and this was back in, I think, 94, I came back to Korea in 94. And back then there were very few. I, I think I was pretty much the only student throughout middle school and high school. Hmm. Um, uh, having spent uh, that significant amount of time overseas. And so the school really had no idea what to do with me. Um, mm -hmm. And what I realized, what I, what I was told later on was that when I was going up to high school, my parents and the teachers were worried. Uh, you know, how is this kid going to keep up with the rest of the students? I mean, he's barely reading and writing now. So, and, and you know, in, in, in several years, this kid is going to have to take the Korean SAT and go up to university and everything. And so how is he going to keep up? And so they actually came up with a pretty good strategy. They wasn't sure if this was going to work, but they said, all right, let's just let this student, let, let your kid just forget about the, the main subjects that, were, that they're teaching in school. Um, I mean, he would have to take the test and everything, but let's just, let's just, uh, you know, put that aside and let's have him just focus on studying English. You know, he, 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 it, it's pretty clear that he can't keep up with the rest of the students. So let's just have him study English and see where that takes him. And I remember spending um, most of my time in high school, throughout high school, studying for the TOEIC test. And back then the TOEIC test was, I if I can remember correctly, it, it, was, uh, it was still quite new at the time. It may not have been, I'm not really sure. But um, yeah, I had no one around me was studying for the TOEIC test. No one had, even, a lot of kids probably didn't even know what the TOEIC test was. And so, you know, my dad bought me a couple of books and I started, you know, studying for the TOEIC test. And luckily enough, that actually was the very thing that got me into university. If it hadn't been for that, I, there was no option for me. I couldn't go to university, like nowhere, because um, I took the KSAT, the Korean Scholastic Aptitude Test, and the score that I had was nowhere near enough to, uh, to be accepted in any school at the time. And so the only thing I had was my TOEIC score, and I was very lucky because the school and the department that I ended up uh, studying in was actually accepting 10 students, 10 students with uh, exceptional English, uh, with an exceptional command over English. And so I submitted my TOEIC score and I was accepted. And so that was, uh, was a pretty good plan. Wow. Were you aware of what was, what that test meant? Uh, well, it, you know, it was, it was an English test. <laughs> but were you aware of what it meant for your future? Uh, no. I, um, I, you know, I, I always, 
you know, I, I was always um, treated a little differently, uh, especially, I guess, in some ways, because I, you know, I, I, I was able to um, speak English a lot better than other students. Um, so in that sense, I've always, I, I always knew that I had this, um, uh, the second language as, as an arsenal that I could, um, that I, uh, at my disposal, at my disposal that I could use, but I, uh, it, it was a very, it wasn't, um, yeah, back then, I had no idea where that would really end up. In university, you graduated with hotel tourism and management. Mm -hmm. Was this, like, why did you choose this as your major? And was it always an industry you wanted to pursue? Um, no, <laughs> because, and I can prove that. Um, I found out about hotel tourism and management, this, this industry, and the fact that you can actually major in it. I only found out about this after I started applying for schools. <laughs> with the uh, with the TOEIC score, and so like I said before, it was this or nothing for me at the time. That was my only option. And the funny thing was that um, that school and that department at the time was actually quite highly sought after, um, which means that they actually required a pretty high KSAT score. I think in the upper five percent or something. That was a. It wasn't like it wasn't one of. It wasn't like Seoul National University, but. It was actually, uh, they, you know, a, a lot of students would, would have been really happy to go in there. Uh, they would have considered that a big success. And so, and so I was really lucky, like I said, I was very lucky to have, uh, to have studied there. Um, so I guess, uh, so the answer to that question is actually no. I, I, that's not something that I had a lot of interest in. So I guess uh, to answer that in a different way, um, did it interest me as I was studying there? Uh, was I, you know, did, did I ever become interested in that area? Um, unfortunately, no. Um, after four years of, um, well, I didn't really study. I, I was just there <laughs> taking the classes, but um, studying there made me, actually made me realize how, uh, how, how uninteresting everything was. So, I actually spent uh, several months uh, working for at, at a hotel as an intern. Um, they actually have this course where they uh, send students to hotels uh, for the experience, and that experience uh, it was it was okay. It was fine. There were a lot of uh, cool people there, and you know it was it was um, like a very small glimpse into um, a potential future, I guess, at the time. And you know it, it wasn't really that exciting. So um, yeah, I decided that it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't, that wouldn't be my future. Um, it could have been, I guess. Um, another fun fact was that one of my uncles at the time was actually a good friend of the Dean at that department at the time. So, you know, in, in my parents' minds, everything was just aligned perfectly for me to actually achieve great success in that area if I had you know, if I was inclined to, but unfortunately I wasn't. Uh, and I'm glad I was actually against it because um, I, I, I would never have survived there, I think. So then how did you get into 
-hmm. becoming an educator. I know you were a course developer and an academic supervisor. How did that come to be? And how did you get inspired to start your own YouTube channel and be, you know, create lessons for thousands of people to learn English? Um, <clears throat> there, it, it all happened very um, gradually. It, there was never a point where, uh, you know, I suddenly realized that this was the thing. It just sort of, you know, one thing led to another. Um, the first time I ever started teaching was simply because that was the only thing I knew how to do. And it was um, at the time when I decided to start working as an English instructor, it was just, you know, just to make ends meet um, before I could actually find whatever it was that I was, I was going to be doing. Um, and I, I consider myself one of those really lucky people who actually found a way to make things work with what I had and what, what you know, what I was able to do. Because uh, I, I know it takes a lot of luck for that to happen. And so I consider myself very lucky. So was there ever a conscious point when you said, you know, obviously now you've been doing this for several years and you said that mm -hmm. teaching English was something that you had essentially just wanted to do to make ends meet. But at what mm -hmm. point did it become a conscious decision for you to say, mm -hmm. hey, this is my path, this is my calling, this is something that I am gonna share and teach with mm -hmm. you know, students? Actually, that moment uh, was surprisingly very recent. It was actually um, as I was starting my YouTube channel, I think, um, because, well, I had been teaching um, actively in, in classrooms with students, uh, teaching English for 10 years. Uh, I, had been uh, I had been teaching for 10 years at the point where I started uh, my YouTube channel. And um, like I said before, there was never really a, a certain moment in time where I decided that this was my path. It was just something that I had been so deeply invested in that I couldn't really go anywhere else. I, I had considered other paths, but it was, um, it, it, I felt that it was too late. And it, well, actually, uh, to be perfectly honest, I, I, there, were, there were a lot of moments where I thought that I was pretty good at what I was doing. But I never really felt that it was, um, it was reaching, um, it was, um, how should I say this? Um, my, I myself felt like I was, I knew what I was doing and I felt like I was a pretty good at what I was doing, but it didn't really, it, it didn't really um, feel, it, there was never, uh, I never really had any feedback that proved that. And that was actually really important because um, my wife actually suggested that I try sharing my lessons online. She didn't really come up with the idea of YouTube because I never really considered YouTube as a way to share uh, lessons and to educate or, or to teach anything. But she actually, because there was a point where I was kind of doubting myself is like, am I really, am I really, is this really, am I really good at this? Is this something that I can actually, you know, keep doing for years and years? And she actually said, well, maybe, maybe you need to reach more students and see 
see how get some feedback from more people and um and maybe that'll tell you something and so i started thinking okay well maybe i can do that and i look i started looking for a way to share my lessons with a broader audience and you know it was youtube and it was kind of strange at first because youtube was usually something that it still is for a lot of people uh, a place where you go to um to pass time you know for entertainment mostly um but i and and that itself was felt like it was an opportunity at the time i thought hmm, maybe this because the accessibility is so is so good youtube I, anyone with a smartphone has access to um uh to youtube at any time anywhere so that's uh, and i thought wow that's 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 really great. If you could learn, I mean, because the way I had been uh, working as an English instructor up to that point, um, I would, you know, students would always have to go to a certain location at a certain time um, to learn uh, something, and there was no way to uh, go back to that moment, right? Like once that lesson is over, that lesson is over, that class is done. But online lessons, I mean, that's the beauty of online lessons, right? You can, you can go back to it and watch it uh, again as many times as you want, uh, wherever you are at any time. So I thought the conditions were just perfect. Uh, YouTube, yeah, uh, let's, start, let's try teaching English over YouTube. And so that's how I got into it. I think that was late 2017 when I first uploaded my first video. And um, it started... Uh, sorry, yeah, it started picking up a lot faster than I thought. So you mentioned you dealt with, you know, self-doubt as you were mm -hmm. starting this new endeavor. Did you ever feel pressure from your family or friends or from society to pursue a specific path since this was, you know, a lot different from the norm? And how did you, how did you move through those challenges? Um, yeah, that's... I think that's a really big thing, um, especially, uh, you know, well, I'm, I'm sure a lot of other cultures have that same tendency, but, uh, you know, as far as I can tell, Korea, living in Korea, I, I'm sure that like more than 90% of all people at one point or another in their life, they feel a pressure to um, pursue something that everyone understands, that everyone immediately recognizes as success which is usually the image of a person um, um, getting hired for uh, at, a, at a huge firm. Um, so working for a huge firm means success because it's the title that really matters. Uh, and I've had that trouble with my parents as well. Uh, I think they still kind of feel that what I'm doing now is only temporary, is something that, it, you know, um, it's it's something that I can't really um, maintain for, uh, for many years. Uh, they still, you know, so in a way, they still don't absolutely approve of what I'm doing um, because they have, you know, but, you know, I understand, in, you know, uh, our parents' generations, they think that um, you have to be a, a part of something, a, a part of a big firm to actually consider yourself a success. But anyway, um, yeah, I felt a lot of pressure um along the way and uh i've had a lot of um uh, uh like i said uh during the first 10 years of my uh, teaching career 
there were many moments where I actually doubted. And societal pressure played a big role in that too. Um, you know, watching uh, my peers, um, you know, uh, promoting, getting promoted in their, uh, in, in, in their companies, in their line of work. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of that. But I think that um, I, I didn't realize this at the time, but it really takes a lot of uh, courage and stupidity and a lot of luck to actually um, ignore, to go against the norm, uh, like you said. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I think my, the best thing that I did for myself was actually going against the norm. And have you been able to define what success means for you now? Um, yeah, I think success is, hmm, okay, so let, let me answer that in a different way. A really big fear that I have um, is not being able to do anything. What, what I mean by that is not being able to contribute anything. I think, I think a lot of, for a lot of people, um, of course, there are many different ways of succeeding in life and feeling happiness. But I think that, now this is just, just me speaking, but I think um, one, of, one of the greatest forms of success and happiness that you, can, that you can achieve is being able to contribute, being able to play a part where, where there is demand and where you're uh, helping people and doing something for other people. Um, so you're, I mean, we're all part of a society, right? And I think there's a lot of uh, people fall into, uh, they, people feel, a, I think there's a certain type of void that people feel when they don't feel like they're contributing, when they don't feel like they're a part of something, that they're playing a role, uh, which is also, um, which is also related to the feeling of, of, of um, belonging to something bigger than you. And, and not, only being, uh, not only being a part of something, but also playing a certain role and contributing in that environment. I think that if you, if you feel that you are contributing and what you're doing is actually valued, I think that is really, that's for me, that's like, that's the idea of success. So is this what drives you to continue to create content? What motivates you and inspires you to keep going? Uh, yeah, the feeling of contributing, feeling of um, uh, what I'm what I'm doing actually matters. Um, of course, there's uh, a lot of other um, aspects to um, to the drive that you're talking about. Uh, what what keeps me going? But probably the the very thing that actually keeps me going is the feeling of what I'm doing actually matters. It's making a difference, and People need it. I'm contributing. I'm I'm playing my part. And at what point did you begin to realize that for yourself? Because I think for a lot of people, they may struggle sometimes with, you know, the vocation. Like the role can actually remain the same, but a huge okay. part of it is your mindset. 
and how you see what you're doing and how you're actually contributing yourself to, you know, to a greater society or to a better good. So, you know, how did you kind of, when did that shift happen for you? Because you went from someone that was Mm -hmm. you know, kind of landing into this a little bit more as a way to make ends meet, obviously mm -hmm. see if you can reach more people. And now you're really defining what success means for you, but the vocation of what you're actually doing has remained the same. So mm -hmm. when did you be, when did you decide to make that change? And uh, how did it come about? Well, I, I think I've always had uh that sort of desire to uh, to do something uh, well, you know. In fact, I think everyone has that desire. It, it's not, not not just a desire. It's like a it's like a basic, almost like an instinct um, to be to be doing something that's to be doing something that's meaningful. And I think that so the um, something that I often see is that. Uh, and, and you know, this, this is becoming more and more pervasive, I think, in our culture and society, um, wanting to play the big role. Um, like everyone wants to play the big role. They want to, like if there's a car and everyone wants to be the engine, like nobody wants to be the tire. You know, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying. But um, I think that uh, every, but of course, a car can't run without any of the parts, right? Even a small part. And I think that um, what what stops a lot of people from finding that uh, feeling of, of of belonging and the, the you know feeling that they're actually uh, what what they're doing matters is that they're they're they think that small part is not important, and so they don't really dig into that part. I think every area. Is important because you know our society is is you know it's it's pretty much dependent on the diversity of of human talent and skills right and so you know nobody nobody we can't have like we can't have a million presidents at the same time and <laughs> that, that would make no sense everyone has to play a different role and i think that if you are um um if you are if you if you're focused enough that you can actually find a great way to contribute in what you are doing, what you have and what you are doing, um, as long as you're not always looking on the other side. You're not always thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's actually what I wanna be doing. No, just uh, what you're doing now, what you have and finding meaning in that, I think everyone can do that if they're focused enough. And I think that's kind of what I did. I think, you know, I mean, okay, so teaching English. I mean, my parents spent years telling me, you know, you know, how much longer are you going to be teaching English? When are you going to get a real job? And so that kind of fed the idea what I was doing, you know, wasn't important. It didn't, you know, it didn't really matter. It's not going to make a difference. But, you know, it's, like I said before, there wasn't really a significant moment uh, when I actually decided to make that something meaningful or um, to make that something that I would be uh, good at. But I think I was just focused on that. I didn't, I never really looked back and I never really looked at any, anything else uh, seriously, at least. Um, I just, you know, that's what I was doing. And I, I just, 
I just kept digging. And uh, eventually I found a way to make things work. Thank you for really digging into that piece because um, obviously a lot of us can get distracted. There's social media, there's mm. you know, all of these things kind of coming at you every day, 24 hours a day, mm -hmm. seven days a week. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that you can really value and showcase, you know, how one can find meaning in, in the vocation and also dig into it and the focus. Mm -hmm. um, I really appreciate that sentiment um, because mm -hmm. you've, you've managed to build, you know, a huge following and managed to really contribute to a lot of students that are looking to learn English. Um, and I, I don't know if that would have been possible if you were maybe having your hands in many pockets or maybe not fully committed or, or mm -hmm. not really, you know, you, you were still testing it out. Um, mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Um, well, that's, you know, uh, uh, that actually kind of reminds me when I go to a restaurant or like a coffee shop, there's usually um, uh, two type of uh, people working there. Um, of course, not, I'm not talking about the owner, but the person who's uh, serving and, and, and waiting the tables. There, uh, it, it, of course, there are a lot of people in between, but uh, when you just um, <clears throat> uh, simplify it, there are people who are surprisingly very kind and friendly and, and just very focused at what they're doing. And they're really, you can tell they're doing their best. On the other side, there are people who you can, you can tell instantly that's not what they what they want to be doing there. <laughs> they, it's like they're telling you, I don't I don't belong here. And when I see that, I that's you know I, I think that's kind of the difference. Um, the 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 latter case being the person who is not focused. Uh, they're they're doing what they're doing, and but their mind is somewhere else. They're, they're, and when, when I think that becomes like a habit, whatever you're doing, if that's not giving them instant uh, gratification and, and a feeling of, of, of achievement and fulfillment, they're always somewhere else. And that's, you know, and that's the kind of distraction I think that you're talking about. And yes, you're right. The social media does make that a lot worse because you're always seeing the highlight of everyone, everyone's lives. And you're kind of comparing that with yours. And so whatever you're doing doesn't, you know, feels like it's nothing. And yeah, it's, I think it's really important to um, focus on what you have um, and where you are. Uh, that actually reminds me of a really uh, famous um, quote from someone, I, I forget who it was, but maybe you can remind me. Uh, someone said that, um, start where you are, use what you have and do everything that you can. And I'm a, I, you know, that's something that I've always tried to remind myself. That's, um, that's a very important thing to remember, I think. It is, that is such a powerful quote. I can't remember who said it, but I do remember that quote. It actually <laughs> yeah. leads nicely into the next question. So we did watch your Sebashi talk, which if I'm not mistaken, is similar to TED talk. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it's like a smaller version of that. And you mentioned, you know, being able to stay resilient through those challenging times, whether it be experiences in life or through language learning. So I'm wondering, how do you personally continue to learn and grow? How do you 
maintained, fulfilled, and motivated within your own life? Well, I, th- I, I don't think I spoke about this um, uh, when I was speaking there, but there was actually a point, oh, you know, something that I forgot to mention that actually really um, uh, inspires me almost every day is death. <laughs> um, remembering that life is really short and I'm going to die one day. And that time will come much sooner than I'm, I'm expecting, you know? And what, when, I, when I think about that, everything becomes really simple. All the decisions become really simple. Uh, you, don't, you tend not to hesitate when you keep that in mind. And I think that's, you know, I probably should have mentioned this before, but um, remembering, keeping in mind that I'm going to die very soon one day, and that really drives me to do everything that I can, you know, with the time that I have. And that's like number one for me, for me. Uh, And and I think that's kind of related to what I said before about, um, uh, what was it? Um, About, um, um, did I talk about some fear that I have? Yeah, I talked about the fear of not being able to do anything, not contributing. Uh, I, I, yeah, at, at one point in my life, I don't really think about that a lot anymore as I did before, but um, there was a time when I, when I was so fearful of dying without contributing anything. Like that would be so sad. It's kind of like, uh, you know, think about people who have, you know, who have done a lot, uh, contributed a lot to their society. When that person dies, they die a hero. You know, it's certainly sad, but you know, it's like you want to give an applause, right, uh, to that person instead of just crying over their death. I think a really sad death is when a person doesn't do anything throughout their life. Um, they, 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 you know, they don't contribute anything. Um, so, you know, they don't. Um, right, they, they they don't spread their wings, so to speak. And so, and you know, you know how they say that the richest place on earth is the graveyard. People die with all their hopes and dreams and all their, uh, you know, un, unfulfilled talent and everything. And so I think it's kind of related to that too. Um, so that's, yeah. So thinking about death actually helps me a lot. It actually drives me to work hard every day and just, you know, do uh, as much as I can. And I want to go back to the part where I said uh, it makes all the decisions very simple. So, you know, I think the reason people become lazy is because they don't really realize how much time they have left. And I think, um, um, and that's, you know, I didn't really speak about that at the, at the Sebashi talk. Uh, What I wanted to um, convey uh, through that talk was that, um, there's this, there's this sense of um, people tend to, and I think this is another thing that's really spreading like a disease almost, and, and social, uh, social media is playing a big part of that, I think. But um, people somehow believe that success can happen without any struggle. Um, I think that's, that's kind of like the main, uh, the main message that I wanted to, um, that I wanted to give through that talk. 
uh, I don't think I did a very good job, but yeah, um, anything, anything that, I mean, think about anything that you're good at. It, it never comes instantly. It never comes without trial and error. It never comes without mistakes. And, you know, this is probably something, it's, it's probably, you know, too obvious, but, you know, failure is, is actually a part of, part of the success. Without failure, you can't have success. And so, you know, you shouldn't, failure shouldn't really be considered a failure. Failure is just something that you do before you, you succeed. Um, so that's kind of how, oh, that's mainly the message that I wanted to uh, convey at the talk. I've never heard someone um, speak so eloquently about death and the motivation. Um, I think, you know, for any of us <laughs> that lose loved ones or maybe friends or family, um, you know, we obviously grieve the person and, and, and mm -hmm. feel the loss, but in the context of our own lives, um, you know, you have a great point that we are all here for a very limited short of time in the context mm. of time and maybe even the universe itself. <laughs> so, mm. you know, what what is next for you? And what is, you know, what is the one thing that you hope people can take away from, from hearing you speak today? I think, um, well, if, uh, if, there's, if there's any takeaway from this, uh, I, I, I just want to emphasize how um, succeeding is really, you know, it's in the, um, it really depends on how you look at it or, or, or what you believe success, uh, success is. But um, just to emphasize on a couple of things that I personally think is very important and that drives me uh, normally is the fact that no matter what you do, and no matter how you know wealthy you become or how well how good you are with something, it you don't really you, you don't really feel the fulfillment if it doesn't really matter to other people. And I think that's and I, I know that may sound a little weird. It may sound like wait, so if if I you know if I'm happy doing this but nobody cares about it, does that mean it's meaningless? No, no. I mean if that's how you feel, that's if it makes you happy, that's that's perfectly fine. But um, I see a lot of that around me, uh, people doing certain things, but they, they lose interest. And when you look at why they lose interest in that and why they lose passion, why people quit something, it's because they, there's a point where they feel that it doesn't really matter to others. And I think that is kind of connected to, um, uh, the feeling of contributing. Uh, I, I think that's, that's a really important part of our basic uh, desire. Everyone has a desire to, do, to be a person that matters, right? I think that's ultimately where, uh, where, we're, where I'm going with this, but uh, being a person that matters, I think that gives you great fulfillment. And in order to do that, you gotta really do something, find something that can contribute to uh, you know, where you belong to. And I think, um, and that's, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, on a daily basis. And that's what I'm trying to be better at. I'm trying to uh, contribute more. And, um, you know, of course, in order to, and in order to do that, that's, that would be the success to be, to contribute more on a higher level. In order to do that, there's going to be a lot of difficult things. I, I would have to do a lot of uh, difficult things. I would have to fail a lot. 
And, but not considering those failures, but those are things that are going to happen before I actually, uh, you know, uh, succeed. Thanks for tuning in. Let us know what resonated with you about this episode by using the hashtag the root of why on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe at therootofwhy.com so you don't miss an episode.